Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. We're going to leave Britain for the moment while Boris Johnson celebrates uh, another mouth to feed. And let's turn our attention to what is happening in America. It's not long until the elections will suddenly be upon us in November. But how is coronavirus affecting the race for the White House? Is Joe Biden on course to become president? That's essentially what we're going to unpick. So pour yourself a bottle of bleach, stick some toilet duck up your bum and join me and Henry Zeffman, Washington correspondent for The Times, as we try to unpick what is going on. They're politicising it. We did one of the great jobs, you see. House President Trump doing, they go, oh, not good, not good. (laughs) They have no clue. They don't have any clue. And this is their new hoax. You're going to lose a number of people to the flu, but you're going to lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession. You know, a lot of people think that goes away in April with the heat. Henry, are you there on the line? Hello. Uh, I mean, it's difficult to know where to start with all of this because... If sometimes we think what's happening in politics in the UK is mad, the five o'clock UK press conference has nothing on the five o'clock, half five Washington press conference where Donald Trump seems to serve up something madder and madder every day. Is that that's the impression from this side of the Atlantic? Is that how it really is when you're a bit closer? Yeah, I sometimes see Brits complaining on Twitter that Matt Hancock in the UK's 5pm briefing has deliberately muddled up testing and testing capacity in order to come closer to meeting a target. And I think you do not know you were born. Uh, in, the, in the US, it's, you know, arguments over whether when President Trump said people should consider injecting themselves with disinfectant, he was being sarcastic or not. That's not what he's doing every day, but his uh Uh, circumnavigating of the various questions he's asked is kind of extraordinary. I mean, the briefings are very different. The first thing is a little bit like the UK. You don't know who you're going to get every day. President Trump, Donald Trump does turn up 
to almost all of them. But there's this sort of strange rotating cast of characters behind him, generally not socially distant behind him, just sort of huddled up behind him on the podium. And people read, I think it's probably a bit overdone, but they read into who is there a sort of narrative of who is in favour in the court of Donald Trump at that particular time. So there was a period when Anthony Fauci, the top virus doctor in the White House, wasn't there for a couple of days. And people thought, oh my God, the president's about to fire him. It might not come back at all. We're going to be watching for it. But it's all possible. It's also possible it doesn't come back at all. We will have coronavirus in the fall. I am convinced of that. Then he reappeared. But the other thing that's important (laughs) about the briefings over here is that they have pretty much stopped. And the reason they stopped, well, it depends who you believe. Donald Trump says that the reason they stopped is because the questions were rubbish, so what's the point? Waste of time. Everyone else knows that the reason they stopped is because he was bruised by the row over (laughs) his suggestion that bleach or ultraviolet light uh, could cleanse the lungs of the virus. It really does sound so ridiculous to just say those words. Just in case there is anyone on Earth who's not come across it before, let's just listen to what the actual president of the actual United States of America actually said. So supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light, and I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. Right. Right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of lungs, so it'd be interesting to check that, so that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's uh, that's pretty powerful. Henry, I must admit, when this first broke, and it was on a it was sort of Thursday night into Friday here, and Friday is the day when I write my column for the Times on a Saturday, which is supposed to be taking a sort of funny look at politics. And that's hard at the moment, if I'm totally honest, because, you know, there's not a lot of lols in Westminster right now. And there was part of me that thought, oh, I should do the column on on Donald Trump. And I thought, where can you possibly go with this? I mean, just writing down what you said word for word and bringing in the paper was funny enough. What was your reaction when watching this sort of live? I probably shouldn't admit this, but I didn't initially digest what he just said because these briefings are so long. Uh, I mean, they're often up to two hours and it is quite hard to know when something significant, I mean, obviously you don't know when something significant is going to be said. It's not signposted. You know, in some briefings, Trump will be taking questions then he'll say, right, I've got to go to a really important meeting. Uh, So I'm just leaving the room and Mike Pence is going to take over. And then sort of 10 minutes later, he'll wander back in and sort of entirely unclear whether the meeting existed, what it was about, whether he just needed the toilet. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, because the way the way these briefings work is they happen. Well, in theory, they happen at 5 p.m. East Coast time every day. Uh, In practice, Trump wanders out somewhere between 5.45 and 6, which is pretty much right on our deadline, our second edition print deadline in the UK. So I sort of watch manically to see if he says anything of any any particular interest in his opening spiel. And often he doesn't because that's the bit that's scripted. 
although he'll add lib his own elements of it. And uh, if he does, or, or indeed doesn't, I'll send over a little bit uh, by email to London uh, and then, you know, watch the rest of the briefing. But, uh, you know, it is hard to maintain total laser-like concentration for a couple of hours. So the, the, the bleach comments or disinfectant comments, we should say, although, although he, he was basically talking about bleach, unbelievably, it sort of took me a minute to sort of cycle back in my head and go, <laughs> hang on. Uh, he is, because uh, it came at the end of a sort of semi, uh, end of a sort of scientific presentation from a, a doctor in the Department of Homeland Security who was talking about how bleach kills the virus on kitchen surfaces. <laughs> and then the president took over and, and went into that sort of slightly bemusing and now infamous passage. We should point out that this is not this was not a, a small blip in an otherwise blemish-free record of the president's uh, time at these briefings. Uh, I mean, from quite early on, initially he said that you know the, this was a hoax, and then it was going to go away, and then the churches would be open by Easter. There was the row of him saying he'd got total authority uh, to basically open and shut states at will until it was pointed out that actually that's not down to him, it's down to governors. There was also, and this actually has far more impact, frankly, on the world beyond, you know, a few feet away from the president. Explain the significance of the row with the World Health Organization. So you've got to understand that so much of what Trump is saying at the moment about the virus is motivated by the fact that this is a presidential election year, that we are, you know, what, about six months now away from him going up against Joe Biden for re-election. And we basically knew at the turn of the year what Donald Trump's re-election pitch was, uh, which was uh, the economy is booming. They said it couldn't be done. Look at the stock market. Uh, you, you can't jeopardise this economic boom, so re-elect me in November. And that obviously has all been obliterated by the virus and specifically the fact that the virus has, has destroyed the US and, and the world's economy. Uh, so when Donald Trump latches onto the World Health Organization and criticizes it for its handling of coronavirus, I think it's pretty well agreed that one big reason he's doing that is because he needs, for the purposes of his re-election, to be able to say, look, yes, the virus hit us hard, but it wasn't my fault because if only the World Health Organization had warned the world earlier, or in fact, China had uh, warned the World Health Organization earlier, or however you want to cast the chain of events, then we wouldn't have been hit so badly. It was out of my control. Re-elect me in November and we'll get back to the booming economy we had before the hated World Health Organization, which is China-centric, as Trump says, cast all that uh, away. It, it is not obvious that Trump is totally wrong about the World Health Organization. There are plenty of people in the US and the UK uh, and around the world, you know, across, across party lines, uh, across ideological divides, who do think the World Health Organization dropped the ball, who do think that it is too China-centric. But, but that is basically the reason that Trump has taken the posture to the World Health Organization. He needs urgently to find ways of deflecting the blame for why coronavirus has hit the US so hard. And it's really interesting the way that right from the beginning, Donald Trump's 
focus seems to have been on turning this into like a bad China thing. He was calling it the Chinese virus, the, the Wuhan virus and all of that from the beginning. And trying to sort of turn it because, you know, previously he's complained about, you know, trade relations with China and that sort of stuff. And there's an amazing story, I thought, um, in the Times earlier this week about how a leaked memo had shown that Republican candidates running for Senate this year had been told, don't try and defend Donald Trump, because basically um, you're hiding to nothing doing that, uh, but criticise China and challenge your Democrat opponents to do the same and call them politically correct if they won't. So it is all about sort of just trying to, as ever, just sort of shift the blame. So it's not Donald Trump's fault. This is China's fault. It's the World Health Organization's fault. It's, you know, it's from over there and and it's not down to him. That memo really, really annoyed the Trump re-election campaign who basically urged or basically told the Senate Republican campaign committee, which oversees Senate Republican campaigns to retract it. But it hit at a central reality, which is that Having cautiously embraced Donald Trump after he was elected in 2016, the Republican Party uh, and its sort of elected ranks are now very worried that he is going to act as a sort of lead weight on them down the ballot, as they say. Uh, So Senate races, House races, state Senate, state House, school board and so on. So they are trying a little bit to, yeah, disassociate themselves from him. I mean, particularly some of the more uh, bleach-related things that he's saying. It's not quite right, though, to, to to think that Trump initially rapidly caught on to selling this as a as a China China virus, as he calls it, or the Wuhan flu. Actually, for I mean, until sort of mid-February, if not a little bit later, uh, Trump was praising how Xi Jinping had handled the virus. He was insisting that uh, it was all under control in China, and therefore it would be okay. In the States, you know, at that point, there was still a very small handful of cases, you know, like in the UK, and they contact traced the early, very early handful of cases and, and all seemed to be calm. So actually, you know, he only latched onto that strategy much later. Trump's early strategy, which was pretty revealing in a different way, was basically to treat the virus like it was a political enemy. I mean, he sort of belittled it on Twitter, <laughs> seeming to assume that that meant that it would go away, you know, in the same way that calling Ted Cruz Lion Ted had blunted his Republican nomination campaign in 2016. Trump you can't get to your realize. supporters to chant, lock it up at the virus <laughs> and think that that's um, going to work. Although they have been chanting, uh, lock her up at protests uh, in Michigan uh, against the lockdown, protests against the, the female Democratic governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. So that there, is, there is an element of uh, old habits dying hard in all of this. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it... it, it, it has been a real learning curve. Well, I don't know if learning curve is right because it's not totally clear that the president has learned a lot, but it has been very different to any other crisis the president has faced in three and a bit years. That, that is, I think, is clear. I think even some of Donald Trump's harshest critics were, if not pleasantly surprised, sort of pleasantly relieved by the apparent sense that they might be about to get through four years where Donald Trump hadn't really been faced with anything of, of such an extraordinary magnitude that they thought, oh, my God, what is going to happen when he is president trying to confront this, you know, a 9-11 style event? Well, anyway, we got to his fourth year as president and, and it happened and it, it turned out he really didn't know what to do. And One of the striking things, having looked at what's happening to 
you know, political support for world leaders around the world, is that in many countries, actually including the UK, approval ratings of the governing party, of the prime minister or president uh, in charge, have gone up. Um, that hasn't been the case in the US. And in part, it's because, as ever, uh, America is split down the middle, 50-50 Republicans and Democrats. And so, you know, if half the people start off really, really, really hating you, they're probably not going to warm to you um, if you tell them to inject bleach, necessarily. Um, Trump's personal ratings are sort of rough. They've gone down a bit. Is that right? On the sort of aggregates, but they're sort of neither up nor down, particularly unlike in lots of other European countries, especially we've seen quite big swings. You know, there's sort of rallying to the flag effect. Yeah, they, they're broad now. They are broadly where they were at the start of all this, but they did go up initially. So the trajectory is really bad for Donald Trump because it suggests that at first people, you know, in particular Republicans, but uh, because, as you say, America is incredibly polarised at the moment, but also Democrats, a few, a handful of Democrats and some independents. They were willing to give Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt or at least subscribe to the idea that, you know, this is a very bad crisis, uh, but, you know, it is very difficult and it's not, you know, not the president's fault. Uh, that really isn't the case anymore. The The concern for Trump, the political concern, is that going into an election, with with it being clear that for the next weeks and months, the number of coronavirus cases is just going to go up and up and up, and the number of deaths is going to go up and up and up, even if the rate at which they increase is slowing. Going into an election, you need a big rally around the flag boost into which to be able to eat. He needs to have that sort of buffer so that he can bleed support as cases go up while while still having a decent chance in November. Now, he doesn't seem to have that buffer. And I think that is part of the explanation for why he is now urging states to reopen their economies and, and kind of putting the US on a path to be mostly reopened, in part at least, quite soon. I think, I think he is desperately casting around for something which will move the dial, not just economically, but also politically, something which will make people say, oh, actually, I think that was a really smart move by the president. And, you know, maybe I'll entertain the prospect of voting for him again in November. There are obviously loads of part of the polling industry in America is vast compared to what happens in the UK. But um, a week or so ago, there was a poll, I think it was a YouGov poll for The Economist, where they asked, uh, would you trust medical advice from the president a lot? 46% of Republicans said a lot and only 2% of Democrats. I think it gives you some idea of the absence of a lack of... Uh, Rally to the flag. Uh, well, in a sec, let's talk about what impact this is all having on the other guy, Joe Biden, running for the presidency from his basement. Uh, we'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. 
From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This is the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Jolly, still joined on the line by Henry Zeffman, the Times Washington correspondent. So, Henry, let's talk about Joe Biden. He should be touring the country, glad-handing and being held aloft by triumphant Democrats who want him in the White House. And instead, he's he's sitting in his basement recording videos and amazing, I was amazed to discover this week, he's launched a podcast. How dare he uh, launch a political <laughs> podcast as if we possibly needed any more of them. But I mean, I know these are unprecedented times, but for a guy to run, you know, to be running for the White House, doing what anyone who's managed to get a microphone delivered from Amazon is doing during this lockdown does seem pretty extraordinary. Yeah, Joe Biden has launched uh, Here's the Deal, which is one of his catchphrases. And now, uh, one of his many catchphrases, I have to say, and now title of his podcast. And yeah, he, according to the Washington Post, he's obsessing over it. I mean, people criticise him for, well, criticise him basically for being old. I mean, he's 77, which would make him, by some margin, the, the oldest president uh, ever inaugurated for the first term. He, he's exhibiting, for a 77-year-old, pretty millennial behaviour. Apparently, he's sort of pacing <laughs> around his basement in Delaware, complaining that his staff aren't editing the podcast well enough. They need to get better guests when he calls people to discuss his campaign with them at the end of the conversation. He'll say, by the way, you should really come on my podcast. And conversely, it's also a sort of hot ticket for a particular kind of Democrat, which is Democrats who want to be his vice president, want to be his running mate. He said that he's going to select a woman. So that narrows the field a bit. But there's a fair number who are pretty much openly campaigning now. Uh, I mentioned one of them earlier, Gretchen Whitmer, who's the Michigan governor. She's been on the podcast. Amy Klobuchar, who's a former rival, uh, presidential rival, uh, senator from Minnesota. She's been on the podcast. Is she and just basically auditioning just, them on the podcast? Pretty much, yeah. Hey, folks, it's Joe, and we're listening to Here's the Deal. I'm sitting here in my uh, home in Wilmington, Delaware, and I'm, but I'm excited to bring you our our next episode. Joining me uh, this week is Senator Amy Klobuchar, who's a great friend. Amy is a senator who's been a talented leader from the moment she got to the Senate. She served in the state of Minnesota for a long time. She's a former colleague of mine in the Senate. Uh, she's a friend, and I'd like to welcome uh, Senator Klobuchar to the show. Uh, well, welcome, Amy. It's good to see you. you. I mean, the vice presidential selection in America is, is extraordinary. I mean, people have to submit medical records going back their entire life or their bank statements, so on. I mean, the sort of vetting procedures they go through are amazing. I mean, I know you wouldn't think that if you remember Sarah Palin, but uh, <laughs> very, very much the exception. And so there, there's obviously all of that going on, the sort of private auditioning process. Uh, but yeah, he is. I mean, so basically they sort of discuss the state of politics. They'll discuss a little bit about what the particular person Joe Biden's talking to is up to. Biden likes to talk about uh, his favourite snack, which is a Fig Newton, which is the is a sort of American brand of fig roll. So he seems to be eating a lot of those. Got a steady, <laughs> steady supply in his basement. It, I mean, this is very strange. And you mentioned that Biden should be glad handing. I mean, Biden, more than anyone, is a politician who thrives on the stump. I mean, thinking back to when there, you know, when there was a campaign trail for me to be on, 
and it wasn't well I mean I was about to say and it wasn't dangerous it probably was dangerous at the time but we didn't realize and I went to his events in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, and then later in Michigan and often at a podium delivering a speech even if it's to a small room he's not great uh you know, he, he's a bit stilted with his words and he can be a bit verbose. But then at the end, always without fail, he will work what they call the rope line. This group of, you know, maybe 100, 200 adoring fans. You know, they want selfies, but it's not just selfies. He will have these amazingly intense conversations with them. If you, as, as you quite often do, actually, if you encounter someone at a Biden event, They'll say, I mean, in one case, this guy said to me, I met him in New Hampshire eight years ago, or no, 12 years ago, in fact, when he was running for president in 2008. It didn't go very well. You know, and we had the most amazing conversation about my brother who was dying of cancer at the time. And, you know, Joe Biden is the, is the you know, greatest man I've ever met. I mean, really, he has, he has a talent of empathy. Uh, that talent does not translate on YouTube and Zoom. I mean, <laughs> he, he's, he's been better at it. He's been better at it than he initially was and better at it than, you know, perhaps your average 77 year old would be or is. There's the bigger problem, which is not about the medium, but is just simply that the US is in a medical crisis. The president is updating the nation daily on it. It is very hard for Joe Biden, who does not hold any elected office, to sort of break through that that story you know andrew cuomo the democrat governor of new york although a bit less so now that new york is over the worst of it you know he became much more prominent than joe biden because obviously it was more important news channels believed rightly for people to hear from him about what was going on in new york rather than to have joe biden sitting a few hundred miles away in delaware sort of commentating on it so he's got that sort of struggle of relevance and that's one reason why he's brought in so many sort of endorsers at this stage Barack Obama's recorded an endorsement video for him. Hillary Clinton endorsed him on a joint live stream this week. Bernie Sanders, contrary to some predictions, has been incredibly enthusiastic in urging his supporters to get behind Biden. I think there's a sense of sort of the Biden campaign wanting to throw absolutely everyone they've got at it now in an attempt to just penetrate the kind of coronavirus agenda just that little bit and hoping that some people get a glimpse of Biden. How is he actually doing in the places it matters? Because obviously Democrats will always remind you that Hillary won the popular vote in the election last time round. But of course, you know, the rules is the rules. And there's no point, as politicians find in the UK as well, there's no point stacking up votes in the places you don't need them. You need to win them in the places that you do. How is Joe Biden doing, according to the polls, in the places that he needs to take back from Donald Trump? Actually pretty well. And this is a relatively new development, not because the polls have moved a lot, but because during the primaries and so on, there was not that much state polling going on. Polling is expensive. And so, you know, they're, they're not constantly polling for presidential campaigns. Uh, they're not constantly polling what the presidential election results will be in all 50 states, not least because so many states, it's a totally foregone conclusion how they'll vote. But in the last week, uh, we've had a, had a sort of flurry of polls from the crucial battleground states. And what the battleground is kind of flips between different elections. You don't necessarily always know what it was. Certainly where we thought the battleground was in 2016 didn't turn out to be the battleground because Trump won a handful of states that Democrats were totally stunned to lose. He, he won Pennsylvania, which is really big in terms of population and therefore the weight in the Electoral College. I think it's the fifth biggest prize on election night. And he won Michigan, which Democrats had won in every single election by pretty large margins since 1992. And then he also won Wisconsin, another Midwestern state like Michigan, 
which uh, Democrats have won in every single election since 1988. And he came pretty close to winning New Hampshire and Minnesota as well. So that looks like the sort of battleground. So for Trump to win, again, he basically needs to repeat the trick, which is being more popular in those states than he is nationwide. I don't think anyone really thinks that he has a viable route to victory, which involves him actually you know, winning the popular vote. I think that's that's pretty unlikely. But it looks like Biden's doing pretty well in those states. So in Michigan and Pennsylvania, uh, there were Fox News polls this week, which showed Biden with an eight-point lead. In Wisconsin, I think it was a slightly narrower lead, I think three points, but still, you know, that's not a bad lead to be working with at this stage. And then a totally separate part of the country, but a huge state, Florida. Biden looks like he has a solid lead. I think the poll lead there was was four points. So if you're the Trump campaign and you're looking at those polls and you're looking at the passage of the coronavirus curve, you're thinking, oh, dear, we need something pretty soon that's going to that's going to change this trajectory. And so what do you think are the risks for well Biden and Trump over the next few months? Because obviously some way to go yet in what might be the weirdest election campaign ever. What are the risks for both? This is assuming the election definitely happens in November. I know they're very set in their ways about when the election happens. Is there any prospect of it moving? Well, Biden claimed last week that he thinks Trump will try to postpone the election. Trump is adamant that he won't. I mean, it, it, it's pretty hard to see how he'd do it. Election day is fixed in, I think, three different federal laws. So that would have to be overturned by Congress. Congress has two houses. One of them is controlled by Democrats. So it's very hard to see how that would happen. And even if the election were postponed, uh, it's set in the Constitution that the president and vice president's terms end on January the 20th, I think it is. So whether there's an election or not, Trump and Pence, their terms lapse at that point. So yes, I think the election is going to happen at that point. I mean, one thing that is worth saying is, is that the sort of more complex, but I think more crucial question is about access to voting. Postal voting procedures are pretty patchy. They're set state by state. Some states make it very, very hard for people to vote postally. Um, I mean, there are some pretty outdated attitudes to uh, how voting should be accessed in particularly poor and African-American areas of some states. I mean, it is basically not that far off effective voter suppression. So I think there will be a series of rows much closer to November about access to voting. In terms of the risks for both of them, uh, we should mention with Biden, there is a sexual assault allegation from a former member of his Senate staff in the early 90s, uh, which she recently made uh, and is steadily gaining currency in the media as a sort of topic of, of discussion. Biden, well, Biden actually hasn't been asked about it directly, but his campaign adamantly denies it. So, you know, not to rehearse the back and forth, but that is that is just the sort of issue of it, the existence of that allegation, I think, definitely going to be weaponized by the Trump campaign. So that's a risk. Then for, for, for Trump, I mean, the, the risk is just coronavirus. I mean, not just in terms of what, what it does to people's perceptions of, of how he acts as president, but also in terms of his campaigning. I mean, Trump's campaigning modus operandi is these huge rallies across the country in the Rust Belt, parts of the country that used to be Democrat, which have turned Republican under him. And he is very hard to see how he can do one of them anytime soon. So Trump also needs to find a way to adapt to the new reality, even if he's not currently filming videos from his basement because he's got the White House briefing room to play with. Is there a lag, do you think, just finally, in terms of 
it may be the same is true in the UK as well. That if you're if you're not somewhere where there's a lot of cases, if you're essentially healthy and well, and possibly still earning, then being in lockdown is a bit boring. But it's sort of it's okay. It sort of feels like something that's going on somewhere else. But actually. The higher the death toll climbs. I mean, in America now, more have died than died during the Vietnam War, which is a sort of... That's right. It's a, I mean, it, it's a number, but it's a sort of a very iconic thing in terms of the impact of the American psyche. Do you think there's a point where, as you said, this goes on and on and on over the summer. This is such an appalling thing that whoever's in charge... I mean, it's to some extent the same thing up with the financial crash. Whoever was it holding the ball when this incredible thing hit, you just end up getting punished at the at the ballot box. I think there is an element of that. Certainly, it feels like the November election is not going to be about much other than a sort of referendum on Trump's handling of coronavirus. I mean, you, Paul, the point you make about regional variation is is very interesting, and it's only going to become more important because though Trump claimed at various points to have total authority to order state governors to reopen their uh, states' economies uh, if they didn't want to. I mean, that's just not true. And he's now effectively acknowledged that that's not true. It's going to be up to the states uh, how they reopen. And to some extent, that happens along party lines. So Republican governors generally, uh, although there's a handful for whom this isn't true, basically follow Trump. And if Trump says you know, I want you to start reopening now, they reopen. You know, and a, few, a couple of months ago, they were much slower to shut down because Trump was much more sceptical of social distancing and so on at that point. You're not just going to have the usual political polarisation. You're also going to have sort of economic polarisation in terms of how different parts of the country are behaving. I mean, basically, this is pretty crude, but basically the two coasts look like they're going to be more economically shut down for longer than middle America, flyover country, whatever you want to call it. So there's going to be all sorts of strange disunities across across America before November and how the speed with which different parts of the country uh, reopen affects transmission rates and death rates in different states is also going to be poured over. There's going to be lots more relatively complex bits of data for people to process before November, before they sort of filter that through their intense existing polarized mindsets and ultimately come out with the answer to whether Donald Trump gets another four years as president or not. Well, just before we go, I feel duty bound to ask you what what life in lockdown in Washington is like. I mean, sadly, you can't go back to the um, uh, hyper positive gym classes that you complained about the last time (laughs) you were on the podcast. What are you doing? Just eating massive bags of wheat snacks? Food here is so weird. It's really, really weird. Like I, I, I bought some a loaf of bread that I thought was wholemeal at Trader Joe's, which is a supermarket chain here. I think a relatively upmarket one uh, the other day. And I, there I was. I, I have to confess, I, I made avocado toast with it, being the good uh, Gen Z <laughs> uh, citizen that I am. I'm ashamed to say it, but I did. It's tasty. Avocados are nice. And the bread was like horrendously sweet. It was horrible. And it turns out that there's just lots of sugar in bread here because obviously, uh, you know, it's savoury food. Of course, there should be sugar in it. It's more um, like a cake. So that, that, that is one thing I'm doing. What else am I doing? I've finally accepted that 
people who've been recommending The Sopranos for years are probably right and have been watching The Sopranos, and it is, after all, very, very good. I've been... Um, uh, I have to admit, uh, likewise, we, uh, I've been doing the same with Seinfeld. But, uh, I mean, I think it's really good. I think it could do quite well, this Seinfeld. We're about, <laughs> we're about three seasons in. It's, it's, uh, it's really, I think it could really take off. And, well, conversely, I've, I've, got, I've got two American housemates here who I didn't know uh, seven or eight weeks ago and have now spent an absurd amount of time with. You know um, very and, well. Yeah, and we're currently in my uh, British culture education. Uh, we're currently watching the Inbetweeners, which they are pretty horrified by. Actually, um, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't think enjoyment or amusement are quite the the words to describe their reaction. I got Dave giving you the Sopranos, and you've given them the Inbetweeners, which I like. Actually, I mean, you, yeah. We actually we did the thick of it first because they were both fans of V, but they didn't like the thick of it that much. I think uh, I remember after the first episode saying saying, oh, you know, what do you think? And one went, yeah, it's, it is like Veep, but it's, it's very dry. Um, and uh, <laughs> I suppose that is true, but it, uh, it sort of also made me worry how many of my dry comments they thought were serious over the proceeding. Henry Zeffman there. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss any future episodes. And you can sign up to the Redbox email, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.